0: Well, my name is Scott Revely. It's been a long time since I've been here, and I'm very glad to see you. I was going to tell you that you're younger, you look younger and better looking than last time I was here, but then I realized you wouldn't believe anything else that I said either. <laughs> and, so, and so I probably just need to keep that thought to myself. Anyway, I am very happy to be with you, though, this morning, and uh, am eager to share with you from Lamentations, because we... You know, we're, we're looking at the book of Lamentations because it's just, I mean, enormously important that all of us have an anchor that holds. When the winds blow, when the storms come, when the waters rise, we have to have an anchor that holds. And um, my hope this morning is that this helps you uh, have an anchor that holds in the midst of the storm. We all have storms of our own variety. Your story is different than mine. Your pain is different from mine. And in some respect, I'm thankful because I wouldn't want yours and I wouldn't want to wish mine on you. But the reality is that all of us have it. In, uh, in September of 1996, I remember as an afternoon, uh, I had uh, taken a separate car to, uh, Marcia's final doctor's visit before our baby was to arrive, and we'd picked out names. We had prepared the nursery, and I was down on the floor playing with some uh, doctor room toys. And I remember the nurse coming uh, to get me and offering to stay with the children. And she said, "Mr. Revely, your wife wants you." I rounded the corner into the room, and Marcia looked at me. There's no heartbeat. And I, it had not yet set in for me what that meant when she followed up, and these are really her words that she reminded me of even yesterday. She said, I guess bad things can happen to us too. Needless to say, that fall we had plenty to lament in our family. To describe the experience would, for the most part, ruin the sermon, so I'm not going to. Um, And we didn't use the words I'm going to use this morning, but what does a believing response to that kind of pain look like? You all have your own variety of pain, and what does a believing response in the midst of pain look like? We didn't use the word lament, but we had some brutal facts that we had to face, and we had plenty to complain to the Lord about. But the aspect of lament that I want to talk to you about this morning is the one that we needed more than any other. And that was we needed to turn to God and confess that he was in the right when our world felt like it was wrong. That fall and since since then we have found sweet help in Lamentations chapter 3. So I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn there to Lamentations chapter 3. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. What separates Christian lament from secular sorrow is a deliberate turning to God. Turning to God is the deliberate choice in which the one who is uh, hurting does three things. And in the spirit of the book of Lamentations, I'm sure Travis mentioned it last week, it is a series of acrostic or ABC poems. So in the spirit of Lamentations, I'm gonna put my three, Steps or my three requirements that uh, somebody who's uh, turning to God needs to do. I'm going to put those three requirements in an ABC form. Hopefully, it won't be too hard. Okay? So, the first thing that somebody needs to do if they're going to turn to God is A, accept God's involvement in their pain, accept God's involvement in their affliction. I say accept God's involvement because this is a hard thing to get your head around. There is an intellectual hurdle for sure. How can a good God allow or permit or advance something bad and still be good? There is also an emotional hurdle. It's hard to get your heart around this as well. How can God be so crosswise with me? How can God, who is supposed to love me, treat me so badly? I don't mean to bring up the intellectual or the emotional component and move on, but I want to acknowledge them and then look at the scriptures basically to see if we even have a problem. Is it something that we even have to struggle with or can we just say God only does the good things and he's just sort of let somebody else handle the bad stuff. So in order to approach that, I want you to go back to the first few verses of Lamentations 3. And I want you to read it kind of slowly, and I want you to notice. He says, I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Speaking of God, of course. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy, though I call and cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. (laughs) You'll notice he seems to have a focus, almost an obsession, you might say, on how God is intimately involved with his suffering. It's like a whodunit mystery. Uh, and Jeremiah is the detective who will not let the chief suspect rest. But maybe this is an anomaly. Maybe this is the only time in the Bible this happens because, you know, lamentation is all about bad things, and so it has to be about God and bad things, but maybe that's the only place that this talks about it. Could God possibly do these things? Would he possibly do something to his child that his child did not think? was good. Well, I think I, I'm just gonna give you a sample of some other verses. Here's another one in Lamentations chapter one, verse five. Her foes have become her head, her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her. Then chapter one, uh, verse, or chapter two, verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. And then again in chapter 3, verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? I told you it's hard to get your head around and your heart around. Last summer, we looked at the book of Job, and Job had plenty to lament, and here is how Job describes his problems. In chapter uh, one, verse 21, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin and charge God with wrong. He said, the Lord has taken away and he did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then again, chapter 2, verse 10, Job said to his wife, who told him to curse God and die, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now I think the author of Job goes out of his way twice, Twice, Job says there in the first two chapters, God has brought this, God has taken away, God has done this, and the the writer of the book of Job goes out of his way to say, and Job said that, and he did not sin in what he said. Very, very hard to get your head around. The great psalm about God's word, Psalm 119, says this in verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. I mean, this is is throughout the Bible. I mean, think about the most unjust, evil thing that you can think of that's in the Bible, the murder of Jesus. Here's what the Bible says about God's involvement there yet it was the will of God to crush him, Isaiah 53. And then again, we looked last Easter at Acts chapter 2, and it says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Of course, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, caused it because it was not possible for him to be held by it any longer. But what he's telling us is that God, that God is superintending the evil. God is superintending the pain. God is setting limits on Satan, but God is involved. And we have to get to the place where we can accept that. I think this is the hardest part of lament. Recognizing that God is not Alexa or Siri. He does not exist to make my life easier. Philosophers talk about the end or the purpose of things. Their are telos. The end of God is not to make my life easy Or happy. I think intellectually we need to come to grips with this. Uh, We don't have to understand it. Job didn't understand it. That's what the whole book of Job is about. We don't have to get excited about it or emotionally uh, just, you know, rejoice that God is in the midst of my pain. Jesus didn't seem to be rejoicing in the Garden of Gethsemane when he wept great drops of blood. Intellectually, though, we need to be able to say God in his infinite wisdom is doing something in the world. God in his infinite wisdom is doing something in me that I don't comprehend and I come to accept that. That's really what we need to do. Emotionally, though, it's just still difficult to accept Jerry Sitzer, in his great book, A Grace Disguise, says this. And his, his loss was unique. I mean, he lost his mother, his wife, and his daughter in the same automobile accident, you can imagine. And as he processed it, this is what he said. My loss made God seem terrifying and inscrutable. For a long time I saw his sovereignty as towering cliffs on winter days, icy, cold, and windswept. I stood in my misery at the base of this cliff and I looked up at its forbidding, unscalable wall. I felt overwhelmed, intimidated, and crushed by its hugeness. There was nothing inviting or comforting about it. It loomed over me, completely oblivious to my presence and pain. It defied climbing, yet mocked my puniness. I yelled at God to acknowledge my suffering and to take responsibility for it, but all I heard was the lonely echo of my own voice. Part of our lament is accepting circumstances we are unhappy with and accepting a God who makes us uncomfortable. I don't think there's much to lament, is there, if God answers every prayer in the middle of 74 degree sunshine. The lament is that life is hard and I don't always understand why. And God could fix it, but he doesn't. And at least that's a place to start. Because then I'm dealing with God rather than ignoring him or pretending he's not involved. And I can tell you from experience, it makes a difference if God's involved, but the question is, can you accept that or not? And so, accept that God is involved in pain, I think, is the first thing you have to do in order to turn from God. You can't ignore God as though somehow your pain had nothing to do with Him and then hope that it's you're going to somehow figure it out spiritually another way. That brings me to the second aspect of turning to God, which is to believe, to believe, to accept and then to believe. believe in God's character and covenant promises. And this is where we get to sort of uh, relax a little bit in Lamentations three. Verses 21 through 23 again, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. You'll notice that in verse 18, if you look back, he had already lost hope. He had said, my hope is gone. But then he calls this to mind and has hope. What is it? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Those are some of the most beautiful words ever penned. We're inclined to think that these would be, as the Proverbs talk about fitting words like apples of gold in settings of silver. (laughs) They are however, if you think about it, apples of gold in a mudslide or apples of gold in a war zone. They're completely out of context. They're out of of place in the context that, uh, that Jeremiah has in Lamentations. Because the city had been sacked and everything was in ruins and the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Steadfast love translates one of the most precious words in the Old Testament, chesed, and that simply means that God loves you because he has committed himself to love you, has made a covenant to love you. And he's not going to change on that. It never ceases. It may feel like God has stopped loving you, like he has done being faithful, but he never stops. And I think it's easy to say this when we see a beautiful sunrise. Oh, your mercies are new every morning. In fact, you've probably seen captions like that on pictures of sunrises. When you have a glorious vacation at a beach or the weekend on the slopes, when all is right with the world, we're inclined to think his faithful covenant love never fails. When we're in church and we sing, Great is thy faithfulness, it seems almost certain. But the context of this passage tells a different story. I can imagine Jeremiah sitting at his writing desk, looking out at the sunrise, only to have it obscured by the smoke rising from the fires that had burned all night just down the street. His thoughts were interrupted by the wails of a mother whose child died in the night. Military drums of the Babylonian invaders wake what remains of the city. And he writes... Your mercies are new every morning. They are new every morning. I think this indicates that there is a fresh supply of mercy and kindness for every new day. You have a new day, you have a fresh supply. Yesterday was hard and you feel like you used up everything. When you get up in the morning, there is a new supply. And even the dark days get their own new supply of God's covenant, faithfulness, love, and mercy. This is not a high point of the author's life. This is the very worst imaginable situation. The evilest imaginable empire has just sacked Jerusalem. Foreign gods had just overrun the temple of the living God and now... He proclaims, Your covenant faithfulness never ceases. Everything in his world screams, God is done. But it isn't true. This echoes one of God's central self revelations. On the mountain, uh, he passed by Moses. And said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Who is this God? This God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in covenant love. What does he do? He keeps... His promises. He forgives and He holds people accountable. And that is what is happening in Lamentations. The Scripture still stands. God has not changed. Even though life certainly has. Then in verse 24, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. To say the Lord is your portion is to say that what you have remaining when everything else has slipped away is that you have God. This is like the prize after a fight, like the, the booty that someone might gain in war. What you have belongs. What you have is God, and it belongs to you. Though I think the way he's using it here is that all you have left is God. You can hope for no greater thing. When you feel like you've lost everything, you still have the best thing, because God is your portion. Then he says, so I will hope in him. Again, this is the same exact language in the Lament Psalm of, um, in Psalm 73. Why do the wicked prosper? He says, God, I don't get it. And then he says, whom have I in heaven but you? There is none on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. I mean, think how hard it is when life is bad to focus on the goodness of God. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. Turn to the Lord. Believe that His character is the same. His covenant promises are faithful. And trust in the goodness of God because the badness of the circumstances don't change the goodness of God. God is good when you get married. God is good when your marriage struggles. God is good when your friends are all gathered around, and God is good when you're lonely. God is good when He gives you health, and God is good when He grants you sickness. God is good when you live in America. God is good when you live under a communist dictator. And I just have to stop and say, in the words of Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. And you will continue to doubt God's goodness if you do not know his word. If you can't go back to Scripture, you will never trust God's character in covenant faithfulness. You must have the Scriptures. That's why I kind of did this survey in Psalm 73 and Psalm 34 uh, because The fundamental mark that a Christian must have is God's revelation of his character and his purposes in the world, and you get that through his book. Your religion is nothing more than a shot in the dark without God's word. If you don't regularly find ways to get it into you, into your heart, then your religion will be little more than superstition. Because the Bible is what reveals the character and the promises of God and that is what we trust in. That is what we believe. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Verses 26 and 27. In the midst of all this devastation there, he he finds something good and the good is in the approach the approach to waiting for God to, be, to show himself true and faithful and loving. To wait quietly is good. To rage against God is not. There are ways to endure unhappy circumstances, certainly, that are not good. Then he goes on. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust that there may be yet hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Verse 30 there sounds like Jesus was familiar with lamentations, doesn't it? When he said, turn the other cheek. Jesus himself in his lowest moment gave his cheek to the ones who spit on it and struck him before he was crucified. For the Lord will not cast off forever, verse 31. But though he cause grief, yet he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. If you had a statement before of God's character and his covenant faithfulness, here you just have this resolute affirmation that I will trust him. God will not cast off forever. This will pass. If the devastation in Jerusalem could pass, the devastation and the frustrations that we have with this pandemic will pass. God causes grief. There you have it again, His involvement in your pain, right? But His compassion is certain. His character and his commitment to his covenant is sure that the grief will not last. Verse 33 here is the center of the book. And if this, this book, the structure of the book is pretty interesting because there are, um, chapter 1 is an ABC psalm, there's 22 verses. Chapter 2 is 22 verses, it's an ABC psalm. Um, chapter 4 is an ABC psalm and has 22 verses. Chapter 5 is not an ABC psalm, but still has 22 verses, like a nod to an ABC. I've kind of tired and given up on ABCs, but I'm going to use 22 verses anyway, okay? But chapter 3 has 66 verses because there are three verses at a time that start with A and then with B and then with C, and in the middle of the entire book, so, so the three verses, I think, are a way of emphasizing that chapter 3 is the most important. And at the center of that most important thing, you might say the pinnacle of this book is verse 33. When it says, he does not willingly afflict or grieve. Given the level of artistry and structure in the book, I cannot think that this verse is in the middle of the book on accident. When he says, God does not willingly afflict, I I want you to get this. A literal translation would be, God does not afflict from the heart. God afflicts. Sometimes the reasons for those afflictions are obvious. Sometimes we've done something stupid. Or we sinned. Sometimes the reasons we will never know. Either way, and this is what you need to know, God's heart's not in it. His heart is to show compassion. His heart is to show mercy. His heart is to give his, you his steadfast love. The covenant love springs from his heart. But he does not afflict from the heart there are other things i mean he had to be faithful to his covenant to israel and judge them and it broke his heart and i think i think it's fair to say that it breaks god's heart when his children are broken he does not afflict from the heart and i i just want you to see god's heart there when you have Things and I imagine there are things that you're looking back on thinking this was awful. And in those moments, God did not afflict you from the heart. That leads me to the third step, and the third step is simply to confess that God is in the right, to accept his involvement, uh, to believe in his character and covenant, and then to confess that he's in the right. And this confession, you might say, is a combination of the other two, if God's involved in your suffering and if His character and come and tell you that you can trust Him, then a confession that He's in the right is the final step in turning. A confession that God is in the right is the, is the full turn to God. So verse 39, for instance, Why should a living man complain? A man about the punishment of his sins. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to the God, to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself in a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. That is staggering. But his prayer moves beyond complaint to confession. He recognizes his own. He recognizes their own responsibility for their sins. He recognizes complaint is not enough, but rather testing his heart, examining it, returning, returning for him looks like prayer. And note the prayer doesn't look like the ones we're taught to pray, does it? There's no happy ending. We confess, and then he says, you haven't forgiven. You pursue in anger. You've wrapped yourself in a cloud, and our prayers don't pass through. But this I I want you to notice, this pathetic prayer is doing what we're talking about, isn't it? He is turning to God in the midst of his pain. He's confessed his sin. He's honestly telling God how he feels. And it moves beyond complaint. Again, you have it in verse 55. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. And so he turns and he prays. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called to you and you said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. So here we have the description, you might say, of his relationship with Yahweh. I called, you heard. Don't close your ear. You came near, don't fear. You have taken up my cause like a good attorney. You have redeemed my life. What does that mean? You have reclaimed my life as your own. See, here he is in the midst of all of this. You have claimed my life as your own. Judge my cause. He has all the way turned to the Lord and said, I don't want to deal with all of these things. I want to deal with you. I can't help but note that this is not the conversation one has with an enemy. This is a conversation with a friend, with a benefactor. And part of confessing that God is in the right is confessing our sins, confessing that we're in the wrong. Because one of the things we have to acknowledge is that all of our suffering is on some kind of a spectrum. One side is what Israel is experiencing here. God's covenant faithfulness demands judgment on their sins. But the opposite side is the suffering of Jesus, where Jesus didn't deserve any of his suffering. And in between is a spectrum where we directly or indirectly uh, may be suffering on account of our sin. So confession of sin is important to clear your conscience and to appeal to God, to relieve and to relent. And so if your life is such that it's full of brutal facts, and most of us have plenty, what are you going to do? I would say accept that God is involved in your suffering. He is not absent. He is not distant, though it may feel that way believe in his character and covenant promises and confess that he is in the right. Confess your sin and ask him to hear you. And if you have a hard time with this accepting and believing and confessing, it may help for me to remind you that Jesus is God's uh, signal of his uh, um, ultimate covenant faithfulness. I hope that you can accept that God was involved in the suffering of Jesus for your sins. God was doing something there. I hope you can believe His character and His covenant love expressed in Jesus. Jesus God's covenant love never fails So he sent Jesus. Jesus himself said, this is the new covenant in my blood. God's covenant love must judge sin. And it placed your judgment on Christ. God's covenant love holds out to you a new covenant promise, a forgiveness of your sins if you confess them. And so to accept and to believe and to confess. In other words, to turn to God in the midst of suffering is the call of Lamentations chapter 3. And may God grant us grace to deal with this as Christians rather than to suffer as secular people. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this, this is a hard topic because all of us have had things that have knocked us off our feet. Some of us just have small irritations that never go away. And I'm gonna admit they make me want to shake my fist at you. But Father, I pray for the humility to accept them from your hand, to believe you and to turn and confess that you are right. So God, would you help us in our turn to you that we might completely, completely benefit from all that you are doing in our world and in our lives through our struggles. In Christ's name I pray, amen.